In April of 1990, a young man named Christopher McCandless, a young college graduate, donated all of his savings to charity and left his life and family and friends to seek a new purpose. This work took him to farms in the Midwest and kitchens in the West, where he'd spend his nights reading and contemplating the things for a richer and more enlightened view of life. But an avid outdoorsman, he decided in April of 1992 to hitchhike all the way to Alaska, where once in Alaska, Chris found his way to south of Fairbanks, north of Denali National Park, the highest point in North America. And it was there that he decided to take refuge in a converted, abandoned bus where hunters originally found refuge. He hunted and fished for food. He would travel throughout the forest to find berries and roots to eat for his enjoyment. And he was living the life of a true nomad and a true wanderer, living the free life that he had only read about once in books. Nearly 100 days, though, into his journey in Alaska, wise decisions seemed to run out for Chris. Now, nobody knows if it was uh, a lower supply of food that seemed to run out, the change in seasons that, that navigated the rivers differently, or maybe he was slowly losing his mind of the reality around him because Chris started rapidly losing weight and then finally got sick. Now, some say it was accidental poisoning from eating bad roots from bad plants that would mix with toxins in his body from his own malnourishment. Others think, like locals and park rangers, that, that this young man was just an idealistic, prideful boy who went on an adventure and lost control. His journal entries changed. His body and self-portraits that he took of himself started to look awfully grim, and his reflections on life became dark because he was dying, and he knew it. On September 6th of 1992, just two and a half years after he set out on his big adventure, a hunter looking for shelter for the night discovered Christopher's body in the bus. It weighed a mere 66 pounds, and, he thought, and it was thought that he had passed away six days earlier. In his final moments of this tragic and painful story, he passed away at 24 years old, desperate for help, starving, and alone. Now, the end of our life is something that we probably all think about. I would imagine some of us think positively about the end of our life. And I would also imagine that many of you dread those final moments. Will you be in pain? Will you be alone? Will anyone know? Will too many people know? Nobody but God knows what the final moments of your life look like, the scriptures will tell us. But, but all of us, uniquely, and to the point this morning, can see what life will look like after those final moments. The book of Revelation shows us many things. You know, things like what heaven will look like. And what finally happens to evil once it's fully up against good. But this morning, our passage shows us that standing before the throne of God are his people in a dazzling, almost unfathomable fashion. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, completely out of context, not knowing what's before or after it. This is what the Lord revealed to John, what he wrote to the church, and what is good for us to take in this morning. Where the Lord says that when I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. 
And I saw that appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now I hope that what you saw in these scriptures is is God's glory being on display. Pouring out wrath, yes, on the wicked. But also, importantly, saving those who he called to himself from their own suffering and sorrow winning to himself great praise for all eternity. Now, a little context of this passage so that some of you who might not be used to the Bible, you just read that and go, I have no idea what that is even about. Before, before this pa- passage, we have a couple of chapters that are, that are showing in part this, this cosmic battle between good and evil where, where symbols are brought up like, like dragons and, and creatures and angelic features that are, that are crushing and pouring out their wrath. And even we have earthly battles that seem to be somewhat like we might see on the news, although even worse than we could imagine. And then there's this final choice in chapter 14 of what looks like or what is described as a a great harvest where some are a part of a good harvest and some are a part of a grape harvest where they're crushed like grapes for the wine. Now more broadly in Revelation, if you're totally unused to Revelation at large, it's it unfolds like these giant cycles, like a, like a giant wheel that, that rotates and it shows a tremendous amount of God's goodness and glory and his wrath and evil's despair. And then it, then it rotates again to almost show it again, but also in a different way. And our text starts the beginning of, of what I think is like the fifth cycle in the book of Revelation, where this description of judgment is gonna be unleashed when bowls filled with plagues held by angels are going to be poured out on the earth. So after this text, just immediately, so our our text is only four verses long, but then after this chapter, we see in chapters 16 and 17 where these plagues that look a lot like the plagues of the Old Testament are unleashed on the world. And our chapter 15 depicts for us the buildup of this outpouring the buildup of of God's wrath, almost like being stored up, almost like if you're watching a baseball game where the the batter starts to set himself before it just terrorizes the baseball. The the mounting tension in chapter 15 increases the magnitude of what's being displayed here. Where where after this, we're going to see seven bowls of wrath filled with sores and blood and, and another picture of blood and fire and darkness over all of creation, beasts, and dragons and, and uncontrollable weather and earthquakes quakes shake people to their core. And then in our text, it, it seems like it's this parenthesis between 14 and 16, where John says, then I saw another sign in heaven. Where for us, it's, it's almost like a breath of fresh air where all this turmoil and conflict and, and cosmic battles are happening. And then, and then he saw another sign in heaven. Now, signs had previously pointed to this this cosmic conflict between righteousness and wickedness. But here, this sign is going to point to the outcome of that conflict. Not just highlighting it, but showing what's going to happen finally at the end. 
Our, our text, originally written to a church long ago, John writes this incredible vision that he received in just four quick verses for us. And within them we see, I, I think I see three clear experiences or, or feelings that you might have where you, where you read this and you might place yourself in, in one of those three categories. What I mean is if you read the passage, I'm willing to bet a lot that you feel one of these three things. So, so I'm going to tell you what those are. And the first one is within the first verse. So let me reread it. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. Now, why I point this out is what I think the first thing that you might experience in this text is you might experience the dread of God's displeasure. The text shows the picture of angels, seven of them, and it, and it looks like they're, they're holding, like I said, or controlling. In some ways, seven plagues are about to be unleashed. Now, another way to say seven plagues, which are the last, could be seven last plagues, meaning, meaning this, this is a picture of the beginning of it, what we've all been waiting for, where God will judge wickedness and bring people to himself. John's symbolic picture is the portrayal of final judgment that comes when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to save his people and to do away with his enemies forever. Now, God's wrath is viewed as a, all throughout scripture, God's wrath is viewed as a rational expression of his holiness, a rejecting expression against enemies or a rebutting of unholiness. It, it's a must. The scriptures declare that the wrath of God is not just evident or there, but it's demanded by wickedness because he's reestablishing his own righteousness where unrighteousness once was. Now, lots of people don't like to talk about God's wrath, and I think a lot of more people don't like to, to listen to anything about God's wrath or his judgment or, or what happens after all of this. What happens after the end? They want to have this view uh, or even opinion that they'll, that they'll live, that they'll die, and then they'll pass peacefully to another side, to a place called heaven, regardless of whether they've trusted in Christ to save them from their sins. To so, so many, to suggest that not everyone who's religious will enjoy the peace with God, to suggest that not everyone who's spiritual will enjoy fellowship with God is both politically and theologically incorrect. But we just look at the scriptures plainly and go, it's just biblical. This section describes, like many other places, describe the violent actions of a king's judgment on unbelieving, sinful, Christ-hating people. The judgment being described here is real and literal. The wrath of God here is, is real and literal. The images are symbolic of this, of this like titanic-sized outpour of just devastation. Now, that being said, I want to I pause for a second and, and say something to those of you who, who aren't Christians and you know it, who, who know that you're not following the Lord or, or you haven't called out to Jesus for refuge and salvation that he would deliver you from your sins. I mean, first, we're so glad that you're here, whether you came with a family member or with a friend or, or even if you just wandered in because this might be what you think is next for you. I, I just want to tell you really plainly this morning that, that you don't have to suffer God's judgment. At the end of the earth, it doesn't have to be storing up bowls of plagues for you. 
provision for the forgiveness of your sins has been made. Your blood does not have to be shed because the blood of Christ in your place has been shed. So so I just want to press on you, or to put politely, I just want to encourage you, or maybe less politely, I want to beg of you or appeal to you that anything else you place your trust in will meet this massive, apocalyptic, tragic outpouring of God's wrath, and the scriptures are clear that you will deserve it unless you call out to him as your savior. Friend, put your, put your trust and invest your hope for eternity in, in the one who came and did what you can't do for yourself. Scriptures are clear that, that you're separate from God from your sins and that you can't even pay anything off to save you from your sins. You can't try hard enough. You can't even have someone else replace you. And that said, you on, only the God man can replace you and, and he's telling you to put your trust in him. And this, and this scripture, though just briefly, is, is highlighting his holiness and his wrath in just a small way. And I hope that it causes you dread in what God is bringing to unwickedness. Now, there are a lot of people who don't want God's wrath to be talked about. But in the scriptures, we just can't ignore the reality of this devastating truth. We can't cut out these verses or pieces that talk about this. They just want people to talk about love and mercy and kindness. But, but here's the thing. Without wrath, love and mercy just mean nothing. They're just pointless. They're just words that are added on to something that's just sentimental. Love and mercy and kindness make no sense whatever if there's not some kind of judgment for wickedness and evil. They're, they're empty of content. Now, within the last 200 years or so, or maybe most directly in the last 100 years, theologians have wanted to do away with God's wrath as a part of his character. They're totally fine with him controlling all things or maybe even dispensing God's wrath on true evilness. But the idea that it's a part of him, that if we were to describe God as holy and righteous, it would be wrong, they say, to describe him as also wrathful. I think part of that is due to a misunderstanding of what God's wrath is. We're not talking about God, when I, when I say that God is wrathful against witness, we're not talking about God with short tempers. You know, we're not talking about a God who just outbursts with anger or who has an irrational expression of frustration. If you've ever been to a coach pitch baseball game, there's always that one parent who, when his kid strikes out, as like nine-year-olds do, just erupts from the stands, either at his own son or even at a referee or an umpire. You know, when we're talking about the wrath of God, we're not talking about something like that, where someone just loses his mind because because a Christmas decoration falls down in the yard. How can this happen to me? And they unleash fury like the movies. Let me put it like this. If you don't feel the kind of anger rising up in your soul when when you witness the injustices of the world, or women or children being physically abused, or Christians being thrown off of buildings to their death in places like Syria, then there's something wrong with your understanding of goodness. Because there's something wrong with your understanding of justice and wrath. And if there's a God who remains indifferent toward that, then there's something wrong with your idea of God. If that were the case, you shouldn't worship or adore that God. If he's just going to let things go out of control and that he's not going to seek justice on all the things that he created, he would not be worthy of our worship. 
Jonathan Edwards says, though, a God of love who has no wrath is no God. He is an idol of our own making, as much if we carved him out of our own stone. Or maybe to put it more contemporarily, it's like choosing your own American girl doll and and letting her entertain you at your own will because, frankly, you picked her because she looks just like you. Too many of us see God like that. And the scripture says that those are the ones, I shouldn't use that example, too many of you are laughing. (laughs) Like we all don't know what an American Girl doll is. And the Bible is saying that God will come with wrath because he is just against wickedness. Divine wrath is a function of God's love. His love for righteousness, his love for kindness, his love for truth. It's because he loves passionately. He has right anger towards anything that defies him and anything that is wicked and against him. And here we see this bright wonderment of the gospel that in our sin, our unholiness, in our unrighteousness, the the logic of the situation, bit by bit, would and should demand that God should take action against me or you, but instead, he takes action for me by taking action against his son on the cross. The, The wrath of God was poured out on the Son, so that you and I can stand before Him in glory, in worship, without fear, without, without terrifying thoughts in our minds, because we know at the end of the day, someone absorbed our wrath and removed His anger from us, and we know that it's not coming for us. Because if there's no wrath, no retribution, then there's no grace. Because what's the point? It's because of our own sin, so separating from us from the goodness and glory of God, that his grace is so shocking, and it's so awe-inspiring and and transformative to our lives. And here we see in our text the angels moving about, seven of them holding seven bowls, and it's like they're waiting, waiting for God's just wrath to be poured out on the wickedness of history. In just a couple of words, a sign in heaven, great and amazing. We would be right to feel the dread of God's displeasure. But again, friend, you don't have to be part of it. The same God that will pour out his wrath on those of you who are wicked and unrepentant is the very same God who will bring you in so tightly and forgive you of all of your sins by taking refuge in him and calling out to him. And so the call of this text is to do just that. So have dread for God's displeasure. That's one emotion you can have or one experience you can have from reading this text. But but number two on your outline, we see the, or you might feel the tranquility of God's triumph. The tranquility of God's triumph. In the text, just a verse later, we see a a sea of glass and fire. And then a second picture, the overcomers are standing there. Now, when we see this, gla- this sea of glass, it, it reminds us the only other time that it's been mentioned in the scriptures, and that's, and that's Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, where before the throne there was it, where a sea of glass like crystal. So when John sees the sea of glass here in 15.2, we can assume that, that this too is the sea of glass before the throne, in, from chapter 4, but, but here it's, it's mingled with fire. So now we know what we're dealing with. Now we know, I think in this text, that 
the whole context of this passage, the, the subtle randomness you might feel in reading Revelation, you come to this and, and I might say it's like a giant parenthesis and you go, I don't know what that means. What I mean is understanding this, now we see why this text is here, placed in between chapter 14 and 16. In the midst of wrath and judgment, we see this picture, this incredible symbol of God's people standing before him. Now, I hope when you see this body of water like glass with fire and people are standing beside it or another translation you might have say they're standing on it, you're reminded of another conquest that we see in Scripture. Where God's people stood and saw all that God had done for them. The connection to the past is is an illusion or an an illustration of, of the Red Sea back in Exodus where God's enemies were destroyed forever because he delivered his own people through a whole body of water. And we see that they came up to this lake and they were about to die after being chased by these Egyptians and God miraculously parted the sea and they, and they walked through it on dry land and then right after they got to the end, it came smashing down and crushing their enemies. And in our text, we see a new and better exodus A heightened picture where the plagues of wrath on the enemies are going to be poured out and the deliverance from Pharaoh's brutal power, or in our text, the beast's power, they're going to be smashed and overcome. And there will God's people be standing on this splendor-filled, beautiful sea before God in his glory. And I hope you also see within this text, not not just the glassy sea, but, but don't forget about the fire. Where I I want to remind you of what's written about in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were then opened. Do you see that? This, this river of fire in heaven, this divine throne, another vision that was given to Daniel. And, and it's almost like it's repeated in its own unique way now given to John. The multitudes of angels waiting to judge. And John sees within that, within a sea of glass and, and it filled with fire, God's sovereign and ultimate authority and ownership of his people. Now, Carrying on through that, I don't want you to miss what I think is is the most shocking part of this message or this vision, this illustration to us. The most shocking part of this is not a sea like glass where you think that's like literal crystal or just an image of something that looks like glass or in that it's filled with fire. Like none of us could draw that. And I know that because I tried really hard this week. It's not that that is spectacular, but what is so transfixing to our minds is that people, the people of God, have been delivered from their trial to his presence. John Newton once said, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first will be to see many people that I did not expect to see. The second will be to miss those I did expect to see. And in the third, the greatest wonder of all will be finding myself there. Don't remember what was just shown about the wrath of God coming for the wicked. We would be wrong to forget that we once were there. And in God's grace, he saved us and placed us here, standing beside the sea. Glassy sea, fire sea, 
doesn't matter because it's before the throne. Look at the identity of these people in Revelation 15, chapter 2. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Do you, do you know what they were doing? Do you know what this is illustrating? Do you, even, do you even know and fathom how to conquer the beast? We were told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. It's like they stood there holding a sword that was given to them where they slayed the beast by his mighty power. They conquered the beast by the blood of Christ. But chapter 12, verse 11 continues, and by the word of their testimony, these people have testified. This means that they have trusted in Christ in his death and resurrection and they can't stop talking about it. You remember the, the nursery rhyme, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine? That's not for four-year-olds. That's for you. An encouragement and a reminder of all of God's glory. And we would almost be going against him to try to cover it up. And here are these testifying conquerors standing over the beast in the presence of the Lord. The trials, the, the tribulations, the severe suffering that, that they would have gone through pales in comparison to the outcome and reward of what God promises to do in, in showing John this vision of heaven. There's peace at the sea of the king. There is peace at this river of glass and fire. Now, really quickly before I go on, just a couple of things about this passage that might be pretty peculiar, where, where we also see the beast's image. So in Revelation 13, the power of the image of the beast was deceiving the world. But God's people can be seen through this, but by overcoming this image. And how can they do that? Because they know that the lies of the beast of the world are nothing in comparison to the truth of what awaits them in heaven. And going on through this, we also see the number of its name. You might not know what that is if you've never read chapter 13. In chapter 13, no one can, we're, we're given this uh, another image where no one can buy or sell unless they have a mark of the beast. And the portrayal there is that those who are in Christ would not be given the mark of the beast. So they, they wouldn't be able to buy and sell things. Now what happens when you, buy, when you can't buy or sell things? You starve to death. But they're able to fight through it even without the mark of the beast on their forehead, because they, they know that what awaits them is, is better than worldly water and worldly food, because the one who awaits them is the one who will never leave them thirsty and never leave them hungry. And so they can fight even to the point of them dying, because they know where they will stand, on top of the beast, with a mark on his head, but the sword in theirs. He, here stands the redeemed God's people as angels are, are warming up the bowls of wrath, standing by or on the lake of glass, mingled with fire, and they're holding harps in their hands because they're at peace, having conquered through their witness, having been delivered by the Lamb and by His blood, by Christ's death on the cross, and being raised to eternal life by His own resurrection from the grave. And they stand there and they aren't silent. Because what do they do? Look at your text. What do they do? And they sing. They sing. Oh, oh, probably more precise than they sing, they cry out or they roar. There, there isn't this sweet melody that would put a baby to sleep. This is something that will wake up giants and cause them to tremble because of who they're singing to. So third, I want you to experience, and I hope you can, experience the, the roar of God's righteousness 
Look at verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. This is recalling the, the song of Israel, saying after God brought them through the waters in the Red Sea. But also here we see that God's people are not only singing the song of Moses, but also the song of the Lamb. This points out to Christ's redemption, the, the slain Lamb through whose death God's people or whose death God's people are redeemed by. Like, like the Passover that became before him, where the, where the blood of the lamb, as it covered people, they were preserved in God's care. Now we have this slain lamb that, that eternally or seals or protects all of God's people forever and ever. Now the content of this song, if, if you're familiar a lot with the Bible, and I place that out there because if you're, if you're normal... Things probably don't just normally pop up to you. But, but if you're familiar with a lot of the Bible, you might see here and go, man, that language sounds a lot like Exodus 15. Or that might sound a lot like Deuteronomy 32. Or that might sound a lot like Revelation 5. And it, and it totally does. And a lot of the words that come out are a lot like the Psalms. And I think, I think one of the best ways to, to picture what Revelation is doing is it's like, if you've ever been to a Broadway play or even a middle school you know, Christmas show, there's always this, this great canvas in the back that stays stationary, doesn't change as the play goes on. You know, characters come in and out and the story develops and there's a scene, there's an intermission, there's another scene and there's music and people are singing, there's an orchestra. But one thing stays consistent, it's the canvas. Well, here we have this, this backdrop of all of the Bible that's influencing the, the understanding of our reading of the scripture, but also our excitement of the reading of the scripture. When God is talking about delivering his people to the sea, we go, oh, I've, I've seen that done before in Exodus. And it was awesome then, but it wasn't this awesome then. Or we see what's being portrayed in Deuteronomy, where, where it's not only recalling what, what was done through Moses and his influence, but also it's, it's warning people to not go apostate, to not leave the fold, to not leave the faith. And here we have John writing to people who are being crushed by Rome and are being encouraged to leave the fold and he's saying don't leave don't go have hope here's the throne here's the lamb and look where wickedness is it's at the foot of the saints who believe and look where the saints are they're before the throne of God standing on the sea of glass that's mingled with fire and they cry out in a couple of verses we see here, and at the end of verse 3, there are four lines separated into ten main, or two main lines. We see in uh, verse 4, these five lines, where we see one pattern and then three explanations for it. Look at verse 3, where it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the Almighty. His deeds are great and amazing. This statement, you, you, you have a statement clearly about God and uniquely about God. No other, no other person, no other being, no other thing could be described as almighty. Then the second, at the end of the verse 3, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. These are not bland truths that are being explained or talked about. This, is, this isn't Christianese that you might just say because you want to describe something cool. These are, these are particular titles, particular descriptions of of the one thing that is unlike anything else in the universe. It's not trivial, and it's not corrupt, and it's not easy in passing. But he is just and true. He is the only one who can be called Lord God, the Almighty, and he is the only one who is king 
of the nations. Those, those titles belong to God alone. And then in verse 4, just look at it. There are five lines there. The first two are similar, and then the next three lines give reasons for the first two statements. So when I say they're similar, I mean, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Fearing the Lord is synonymous with glorifying his name. We see the the great and amazing deeds of the Lord, and they are just and true. The, The king of the nations, we should fear him and honor him. We should glorify him with all of our ways and all of our energy. Now look, lastly, at the three reasons stated for fearing the Lord and glorifying his name. At the end of verse 4, it says, For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts will be revealed. The first reason gives that God alone is holy. No one else is like the Lord. He's, he's absolute. The second reason given is that of the nations will, will worship him. And now imagine for a second all the nations... The only way that we can categorize that is with the Olympics, right? Where where it seems like all the nations come together. But those are just representations of the nations. What if all the nations actually came together and praised the one at the throne here? Who else in the universe deserves that praise, but also could gather supernaturally everyone to himself? He'll call every soul to account, and no one else can do what he does. No one else is worthy of this glory that he's, that he's just peeling back bit by bit on through symbolism. And then the third reason we see in verse 5 is uh, everyone in the end will fear him and glorify his name on that day. It says, for your righteous acts will be revealed. God has always done everything right. He was always eternally true. He's always been eternally dependable. He's always been on target with his will. Every decision has been correct. Every action has been perfect. And when this God is revealed, our response will be to roar at his righteousness. It will be to roar at his wondrous deeds. Now remember the encouragement that the Lord intends for John to take to his people through revealing this vision. As a backdrop, we know the words of Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. We we know the words of the Psalms. We know the words of Revelation. We know even the words of Jesus that he described himself by. And by showing us who sings the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, John means to motivate his audience to overcome the beast and the image and the number of his names. And he shows the overcomers then to to make, and by the way of showing our these overcomers, it makes us want to overcome now. So you might be sitting there, and I'm not making light of this, you might be sitting there in your true misery where already 2019 is is not what you wanted it to be. You may be oppressed, you may be fought against, you may be left out, you may be abandoned, you may be alone, you may be starving, you may be wanting. But remember the end that God reveals. Remember the throne that you'll stand before. It's not to make light of your situation, but it's to give you hope in the direction of his glory. So will God's justice, when it's poured out, mean delivery or judgment for you? I think that's the big question that's being asked here. We we can see from the text it's going to come. We can see through through different ways the turning of those cycles that it's gonna happen. But will it mean delivery or judgment for you? The world's true King Jesus has has come as the noble prince 
born to die for his people, to deliver them to the righteousness and glory of God. He took our transgressions on himself and he endured the wrath of God to the very end and everyone who trusts in him will be saved. So won't you call on him, friend, if you aren't a believer? You will face one of these two categories. You will face the good harvest or the one that squashes you like grape. And you don't have to endure the wrath of God. You can endure his peace. An English preacher named John Rogers in the 16th century was the first martyr under the reign of Queen Mary. In January 1954, the new bishop of London sent him to prison where he remained for a year. And then on January 19th, 1555, he was sentenced to death. And up to that day, no one, no one could tell how these English, these new kind of Christians, these English reformers would act in this situation. How would they act in the face of death? How would they act when they can hardly believe what's about to happen for them for what they believe? When it seems like the beast is opposing them and, and keeping them from food and water. But on February 4th, as a crowd gathered and saw John Rogers walking steadily and unflinchingly to his fiery grave, they wrapped him with enthusiastic applause, history says. A French ambassador wrote to others a description of the scene, saying that when Rogers walked to his death, he walked as if he was walking to his own wedding. The context of Revelation, facing the battle of life day after day, not knowing if you can go on, not knowing if you will survive, being tempted by everything to abandon your faith and join the enemy. But in God's word, the, the curtain is pulled back for us to show us that, that the angels are, are gathering their bowls of wrathful plagues to be poured out on the wicked. And God's people are standing before him. The, the table is set brother and sister. The banquet feast is ready to be devoured by us. The, the invitations to this great wedding, they've all been sent out. And before the groom is shown the bride, bought and brought by the blood of the lamb, and we'll sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify in your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you just astounded at this picture and overcome with humility, knowing that before all time, you knew us, your people, and knew that you were going to crush evil on our behalf. And so, Lord, we, we pray to you in great thanksgiving and with great hope. God, give us courage and boldness as we go out. Keep your throne before us. Keep your goodness always in front of us. Keep your spirit within us so that we can cry out forever and ever how wondrous are your deeds. We pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.